0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. Precision medicine got some special attention recently when President Obama, in his State of the Union address, called for the creation of a
2: national biobank.
3: But just what exactly is precision medicine and who will benefit from it?
2: And remember, it's not just you. When you find out it's your children, it's your grandchildren, and and that is going to pass down through those uh, heredged trees.
3: We'll hear from Dr. Keith Stewart, Director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic.
2: Also on the program, weight loss
1: surgery. It's a major undertaking. We'll hear about how important it is to be prepared psychologically.
3: And Google and Mayo Clinic partner to enhance the search for reliable health
1: information. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right at the desk. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheid. And I'm Tracy McRae. In his State of the Union address back in January, President Obama announced a major initiative which hopefully will spur the development of precision medicine. So tonight I'm launching a new precision medicine initiative to bring us closer to curing diseases like cancer and diabetes, and to give all of us access to the personalized information we need to keep ourselves and our families healthier. We can do
3: this. But what exactly is precision medicine, and how does it work? Here to answer those questions is Dr. Keith Stewart. Dr. Stewart is a hematologic oncologist, which means he diagnoses and treats blood conditions and diseases. He's also director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Stewart.
1: Well, thank you for having me here. Dr. Stewart, nice to have you. Apparently, you're dividing your time now between Arizona and Rochester, so it's good to have you at Mother Mayo.
2: Yeah, (laughs) thank you. Uh, And Jacksonville, Florida, too. Oh, (laughs) You cover the whole country. Our individualized medicine program is national, so yes, we, we have to cover all three of our sites.
3: The President calls it precision medicine. Uh, Mayo calls it individualized medicine. Are they the same thing?
2: I think they're essentially interchangeable. We, we use the term individualized medicine, which may have a broader connotation, but precision medicine essentially interchangeable together, I think. We're all having a little bit of trouble understanding exactly what that means, individualized medicine,
1: precision medicine, tailored medicine. We all thought that our doctor was only paying attention to us, and we were, <laughs> uh, it, they were tailoring the treatment to us. But it, this is different, and this is, goes further?
2: Yeah, individualized medicine here doesn't mean the, the, the type of high-quality service we offer usually. What we're really talking about is the human genome and how we can use that to impact patient care and and improve it over time. The human genome was first sequenced about uh, 12 years ago now in in a uh, billion-dollar government-funded effort. And since then, there's just been an explosion of work trying to understand how we can interpret that and use it for patient care to the better. So what you're saying is
1: you, you will take my genome or some patient's genome and that will help you treat them better?
2: That's absolutely right. We can understand or diagnose diseases that we didn't even know about before. We can interpret what's gone wrong with the genome in somebody who has cancer. Uh, We can even take a healthy person's genome and uh, try and interpret that to understand what might happen to them in the future or might uh, be inherited by their children that perhaps we can intervene with. Those are the three uh, major pillars of what we think we'll be able to do.
1: But in order to do what you're hopeful that you can do, you need the person's genome and how do you get that
2: well the genome is the dna in your body it's present in every cell and it's, it's what you're born with and it, it basically determines uh what you're going to be like uh, through life it's now relatively cheap uh to sequence a genome it was very expensive to start with the costs have plummeted over the past decade it's getting down to where it's not much more expensive than some elaborate radiology procedure or, or minor surgery to do it to me 20 years from now, everyone will have their genome sequenced routinely, probably not long after they're born. It would seem illogical not to. It's cheap. It doesn't change over the 100 years you live. Uh, we- it contains all kinds of fascinating information about your genetic predisposition to disease and, and, and how we can interpret that, how we can use that throughout your family and your lifestyle. Uh, so to me, that's the goal. It's In fact, it's almost the inevitable goal But for the next decade or so we have to understand how best to interpret the genome, how best to deliver that information to the patient, what are the ethical issues around that, uh, how can we intervene in a way that's positive.
3: In the not so distant future then what you're saying is this will just be part of our medical record like our blood type. You'll have that in there.
2: I think that's true. I, I hope that that will be true. I can't see any reason we wouldn't want to head in that direction. Today however it's a more specialized interpretation. It, it's more focused sometimes not the whole genome, just parts of it or specific genes of interest. Yeah, Are
1: there a number of patients who have already had their genome done?
2: We, well, many, uh, thousands of cancer patients around the country and, and many hundreds here at Mayo Clinic have had their genome sequenced uh, to, and the cancer that they've developed sequenced to look at the differences to try and understand where the Achilles heel in the cancer has arisen because cancer is a genetic disease, and to intervene with drugs that we think will help uh, with, with specific mutations, for example. We have also now started to offer a, a healthy genome program. So you, today, could come to the clinic and have your gen- whole genome sequenced, and we will try and help you understand that what we understand today and as time goes on update that as new information comes in
3: so if you you know for cancer diagnosis that's something that's traumatic and terrible that nobody wants but the flip side of what you're talking about for the genome is for better health care um the one i the one i can think of because i've become aware of it is just the metabolization of your medicines right what are some of the other ways that using your uh, knowing your genome can help you be a better patient more
2: healthy so in the Healthy Genome Program right now, we offer uh, a number of services. One is that we just focus on the drugs and the genes in your body that might interact with drugs that you take through your life and that will give you recommendations on what drugs you're likely to have side, more side effects from that you should maybe use a lower dose or you should avoid altogether. So we call that pharmacogenomics. That's part one of what we do. Part two is we can, if you want look at your genome for genes that are heritable by your children or might explain some strange condition that runs in your family, and we can look for those specifically and individually. And then finally, we can do the whole genome, and much of that we don't understand today, but we will over time. The, the other area where we found this to be quite useful is what we call a diagnostic odyssey. These are often um, a, a pediatric population of family or a family that has a, a rare disease that nobody understands. And by sequencing the genome, in about a third of those cases, we've been able to find a genetic mutation, which, which does explain and sometimes leads to powerful therapies that can correct what was previously unsolvable. So, so if I wanted to have
1: my genome sequenced, yes. I could just ask my doctor to, to do that, and then would the
2: insurance company pay for it? So we have a specific service where the first thing that would happen is you would come and meet with a genetic counselor, And they would explain to you what you're getting into, what's involved, um, what you're likely to learn and what you're likely not to learn, so we don't offer things that we can't deliver on. Insurance companies right now will not reimburse most of this fully, so there is an out-of-pocket cost to getting your whole genome done today. And it's a few thousand dollars, or. It's in the, uh, it's less than, it's about $9,000 to have your whole genome done. If you just want the pharmacogenome, the drug gene interaction, it's only maybe $1,000, $1,500. There's a fee for the genetic counselor. Some of it is reimbursable by insurance. If you have a rare family condition, if you have cancer, uh, that will be, get paid for. The budget that, uh,
1: President Obama outlined was for 270000000 million. Doesn't seem like much.
2: It's not, but I think it's, it's an important start. I think the important thing is that he embraced this, that there's going to be seed funding for the program. Ultimately, it will cost much more than that to sequence a million patients in the United States, which is not patients, a million healthy individuals in the United States. That's the goal. Uh, We're contributing a little bit to that. We have 50,000 male clinic patients in our biobank, and we're beginning to sequence the genomes of those patients. The beauty of that is they've had their care here, and we understand what happened to them. Sometimes over their lifetime if they've had all of their care here and we can interpret the genome and help apply that to other populations going forward.
3: So the Mayo Clinic Biobank will become part of that, would become part of the National Biobank, which is what the president is talking about
2: doing, correct? Well, we'd like to be part of it. That's all still being sorted out. There are issues of geography and diversity of the population, Mm -hmm. but certainly we'd like to play a role in that.
3: What's the benefit of having a National Biobank?
2: Well, the benefit is getting from, from where we are today, where we can sequence the genome, but we don't fully understand how that will impact people's health over time. By doing enough patients so that we have all of the major diseases represented, we can look backwards and look, say, well, what could we have told you that ahead of time? Could we have done anything about it? Some diseases, of course, are not that common, so you need a very, very large population of patients. You need different ethnic diversities. You need different ages. Uh, you need different sexes. All of those things uh, require a very large sample size so that we can cover all those major problems one of the really fascinating things we've started to look at too is it's not just the dna you're born with it's what happens to it afterwards you know identical twins look you know they have different things happen to them during life we call that epigenetics it's like the decoration on the christmas tree that turns it on or turns it off and makes it light up or or go dark uh, we need to understand how that impacts care and then finally uh, we're interested in what the bacteria in your body mm. do. They have a genome. It interacts with the human genome on a daily basis. We call that the microbiome. And it's turning out to be really quite interesting in how it impacts human health and how it can change over time if you end up on antibiotics or in a hospital or, or just sometimes you know, the daily stresses of life can change it. So is the biobank this
1: collection of genomes, sequenced genomes? Our
2: our So our biobank is 50,000 male clinic patients who have given and donated blood, uh, and we've saved uh, that in the biobank, DNA, RNA, which is uh, the the thing that goes on to make proteins, and we've just saved cells and blood. Uh, the, The national program that President Obama talked about would be a million genomic sequences but to get those sequences, you need to have a source, and the source would be biobanks that are, run, that are national uh, in various institutions around the country.
3: We're talking with Dr. Keith Stewart about precision or personalized medicine. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, precision medicine can help predict which diseases you're likely to get.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are here with Mayo Clinic Precision Individualized Medicine Researcher, Dr. Keith Stewart. Dr. Stewart, myth or matter of fact, precision medicine can help predict which diseases we're likely to get. Myth or matter of
2: fact? Uh, That's a fact. Uh, Although it's not uh, 100% known what all the genes in our body do today, there are many diseases which are genetically based, and that we can predict that if you have that Particular uh, genetic uh, change in your genome, that you'd be at higher risk for developing disease later in life. Are we at the point in time where, if I did come
1: in and pay to have my genome done, you could say to me, Ooh, you're a setup for Alzheimer's, or it looks like you're going to get heart disease or cancer?
2: To a certain degree. I think some of them very clearly. Cancer is a good example where very clearly there are genes which give you a high risk of developing cancer later in life. You've seen prominent examples of that in the media recently. Uh, Angelia Jolie having a mastectomy and and hysterectomy because she found to have a gene which would predispose her to those cancers. There are certain genes we know will make your cholesterol go too high and will put you at risk for heart disease. And there are genes that are now being identified that might put you at risk for psychiatric illness or or even uh, dementia problems. And that's where things get a little tricky.
0: Mm -hmm. If
2: you're young, I'm not sure many people would want to know that when they're eighty years mm-hmm. old they're going to have dementia. So that's where we, we actually at this point would ask the patient, how much do you really want to know? And remember it's not just you. When you find out it's your children, it's your grandchildren and, and that is going to pass down through those uh trees That's why the first step is is a visit with our genetic counsellor so you can think- understand just what it is you're signing up. This has yeah,
3: brought on the new profession of a genetic counselor because yes. that is part of well, that is new, what that job been is. around, but sure. the
1: role
2: has uh, has At least in
3: the last 12 years.
1: Yeah. yeah, you don't want to really bring the family together and say, "Sit down, I got some bad news." Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're that's a,
3: one of the fears yeah. that people have that we mentioned in the first segment about mm-hmm. the ins- does insurance co- cover this or not? Some people would say, "I don't want insurance to know anything about anything that has to do with this because they'll drop me from their, my coverage if it's yeah, found not, that I I'm, have I'm, something." I, we
2: have a bioethicist, Dr. Richard Sharp, who, who probably would give you better information on this. My understanding is that President Bush brought into law a law that said you cannot use your genomics mm-hmm. to discriminate against your employment, uh, for example. But I do understand there, there is the potential that this could change things like life insurance, for example. So those are other issues that still have to be worked out.
1: Now, you as a cancer survivor, have you had your uh, genome done? Well,
3: yes and no. Um, I have not, to my knowledge, um, but I am part of the biobank. And so I have learned some things because when they, it, well, you can explain what the biobank does, but when my blood is used in research, they might find something out, and then they send a letter on over to me. So explain, how do
1: researchers
2: use the biobank?
1: Well, so, and if she's in the biobank, she's had at least part of her genome sequenced, right? Right.
2: I don't know if, she, if Tracy particularly. I mean, don't has had you have to, Isn't that a prerequisite for getting in biobank? We yeah. have to ask Tracy if we mm-hmm. do anything like that. She mm-hmm. would be informed if we were going to do. That. What we're going to do this year, which is quite exciting, is, is we're going to take ten thousand patients from the biobank. They're all going to be asked, "Would you like to participate?" In this, and we're going to sequence just the part of their genome that's the drug gene interaction part. Mm-hmm. We're going to put that in their medical record so that when their doctor goes to give them a drug, this will pop up and tell the doctor, you know, you should avoid that drug or use a lower dose. A, g- a great example, for example, mm. is, is Coumadin, the drug we use for, for blood thinning. Yeah. And that, that would be one of the things that would then be in Tracy's permanent medical record. And
3: that's exactly the information that I got was about a drug the metabolization.
2: Next, yeah. Mm-hmm. The next step then is to ask you, and we will be starting the first 1,000 patients this year, would you like your whole genome sequence? Mm-hmm. And that's where you'll have the chance to decide whether you're, <laughs> you're into that or not.
1: So there are some diseases that have been linked to specific gene mutations, correct? Many, hundreds. And so if I had my genome taken, you could potentially tell me that I'm a setup for a certain disease.
2: For some diseases, yes. For some, that are clearly not just purely genetically driven. Let's take coronary artery disease, for example. We may be able to tell you you have genes which make you at higher risk, but you may not get coronary artery disease unless you smoke or become obese or don't exercise, and That's where we think there might be modifiable risks that we say you're at high risk for this, but if you behave yourself, you could reduce that risk. What
3: about the false positive effect? You know, maybe your genome shows that you're at a high risk for heart disease, but you end up being 90 years old and come to find out you never had any problems with heart disease at all. How does that all fit into
2: this? Well, this is part of the reason we can't sequence your genome today and then give you, like, the full spectrum of exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, we're, that's why I said it's going to take a couple of decades. It's going to take the million-person biobank to start to sort out those issues. Because you're right. There may be – my mother's an identical twin. Mm-hmm. She has rheumatoid arthritis. Her identical twin doesn't but has diabetes. Well, how does mm-hmm. that happen? They have exactly the same genome. So clearly there's modifiable features part of which we call the epigenome. These are the things that decorate the DNA o- over your lifetime and are influenced by your lifestyle.
1: How has this uh, influenced your practice? You uh, treat cancers of the blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has uh, the ability to sequence a genome helped in your practice?
2: Well, we were sort of, the blood cancer doctors were kind of pioneers because it's easy to get the, uh, the, the blood, obviously, so we could look at it quickly. And by sequencing genomes we found all kinds of mutations that we can target with specific drugs, so we can change our treatment based on the genome. And sometimes it will tell us a patient is not going to respond to a drug and we can save hundreds of thousands of dollars by avoiding that particular drug which would be unnecessary, wouldn't work and would cost a lot of, of money. So for us it's been um, it's become almost part of our routine practice to look at parts of the genome at least in blood cancers.
1: So then you know which drugs might be most effective and which we would be Prognosis, uh
2: prognosis, what type of therapy is going to work best, and what type of therapies we should avoid. Absolutely correct.
3: Um, and in closing, if people want to be part of this national registry that the president is hoping to set up, mm-hmm. or here at Mayo Clinic, part of the biobank registry, what mm-hmm. would you
2: like them to do? Well, for the president's registry, there's, there's nothing to be done today because it's still in the process of being worked out. If you'd like to join the Mayo Clinic Biobank, uh, please give us a call.
1: All right. Thanks very much, Dr. Stewart. Dr. Keith Stewart is director of the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Great to have you on the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you.
3: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, evaluating the psychological factors of weight loss surgery. Preparation is key.
1: And we'll hear about a new partnership that's helping to sharpen the focus on quality of health information on the web.
3: Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag MayoClinicRadio or send an email to MayoClinicRadio at Mayo.edu.
1: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: attention a tornado warning has been issued. We are talking extreme weather preparation. I'm Vivian Williams with this Mayo Clinic News Network headline, no matter where you live, severe weather can hit.
2: Disasters hit everywhere. Our preparation and our understanding of where we live and what the effects and what we could be hit by is important.
0: Mark Bilderback and Meredith Sexton are emergency management associates at Mayo Clinic. They say it's key to think ahead
4: and put together
0: an emergency kit. In general,
4: a first aid kit, of course, with the debris and whatnot kind of coming around, so you want to make sure you have something to handle that. A weather radio, specifically battery-powered, so that you have um, access to that, so there's an alert function on it. Um, A whistle in case you are trapped and you need to make some noise and you need some sort of resource to alert people as to your location. Some sort of a tool to shut off your gas supply. Um, and something that's not sparking. So you want to make sure you get a specific tool that won't spark as you're trying to shut off your gas. You also have flashlights, extra batteries, a poncho, possibly some sort of disinfecting wipes or cleaning, cleansing wipes. Also, be sure you have three to four days' worth of food and water.
0: That's about a gallon of water a day per person. Don't forget personal items such as extra clothes, toiletries, cash, games, and a notebook, or something to do if you're stuck in the basement riding out the storm or waiting for help to arrive. Being prepared can help keep you safe. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shaw. And I'm Tracy McRae. Weight loss surgery, also known as gastric bypass or bariatric surgery, has become, interestingly enough, the most effective way to lose a lot of weight. It is also one of the most effective treatments for obese people who have type 2 diabetes, and many of them are cured of their diabetes after they have this surgery.
3: But weight loss surgery is not without risk. Here to talk about preparing for weight loss surgery is Dr. Karen Grothy. Welcome to the program, Dr. Grothy. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Dr. Gurthy, nice to have you here. You. So uh, I assume that there were, are there a lot of areas that you could sort of spe- subspecialize in. How did you get involved with patients who are seeking bariatric surgery or, or who are potential candidates?
4: Sure. Well, I'm a clinical health psychologist, so that means I work with behavior change and mental illness associated with medical disease. And in graduate school, I wanted lots of different experiences with patients struggling with heart disease and diabetes and things like that. And a lot of the risk factor came back to weight. And if people could just lose weight and keep it off, they'd be dealing much less often with these more significant health conditions. So I started moving more into the realm of weight management. And as you mentioned, bariatric surgery is one of the most successful long-term treatments, but it isn't 100% successful either, and it isn't without risk. And so helping people really identify if it's right for them and, helping them do well with the surgery just became one of my life's passions. If you're obese and you decide you want to go through all of the
3: physical and emotional pain that this surgery entails, why is there the additional step for what you help them with to determine? Because do you determine if you're really ready for this surgery? Is that Mm -hmm. what you do? Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So for bariatric surgery, the outcome is really dependent on each patient's behavior. And surgeons don't always like that, but they can do the most perfect bariatric Procedure, but unless this lifestyle behavior change piece is there, it's not going to be a durable outcome, even with changing the anatomy. And so, what we do with folks is try to look at risk factors, things that might complicate the process for them, things that might predict that they won't do well from a weight loss standpoint or from a psychological adjustment standpoint, and try to help correct those factors or improve those factors so that they have a higher chance of success. And really, changing that lifestyle is the cornerstone to any treatment for managing weight, any procedure, any medication that lifestyle is really what's going to set the tone for how far you can take any of these other measures.
1: So why can't you just change their lifestyle and then they don't have to have the surgery? Does that ever happen?
4: It does. (laughs) It does. Um, Not as often as we might like, but I think there's a reality that we're learning more about all the time about once you get to a higher weight, how your physiology really fights to keep you there. Even if you make changes and lose some weight, you're still struggling with some of these physiological mechanisms that make you feel hungry, that um, affect your satiety level, which actually the bariatric surgeries do impact on a biological level.
1: So you sometimes end up saying to the surgeon, I don't think this patient will do well.
4: Uh, We do sometimes. It's really 10% of the time or less that it would come from the psychologist or psychiatrist on the team where we're saying it's really psychological factors that we think why this patient won't do well. So it's not very often, and it's really more severe psychopathology type of Mm concerns, so really severe addiction, really severe uncontrolled mood or psychotic disorder you know, imminent suicidal ideation, those types of things, where often we're saying we don't think this is the right time. Some of these factors may improve over time. And less often we might say there's just a chronicity and a severity here that we just don't think altering their anatomy in a way that depends on them behaviorally following through is ever going to be a good idea.
3: You mentioned the time piece, and I was wondering, for mm-hmm. average, let's lump everybody all together, how long is that time before the surgery ever takes place yeah. that you work with a patient?
4: So here at Mayo Clinic, it's somewhere between six and eight months, um, insurance companies play a role there. About a, a third of insurance companies right now require a six month medical weight management program prior to paying for a bariatric procedure. Uh, here at Mayo, we are one of the few programs in the country that require a behavioral preparation program. So we require a three month behavior therapy for weight management program that we will provide for them here or we will try to connect them with someone like ourselves closer to home and give them materials based on the Mayo Clinic diet and the programs we've developed here to really get those lifestyle pieces into place before they take it to this next level of the intervention.
3: Is the surgery then the middle of their journey? It- Is the surgery the end of their journey? Mm -hmm.
4: That's a great question. It seems a lot like patients feel like it is the end of the journey. I meet all my insurance requirements. I meet all Mayo's requirements. I'm behaviorally, medically, nutritionally optimized to safely go through the surgery, and I get it and I'm done. And that's really not the case. The first year after surgery, if patients are not experiencing a lot of complications, we often refer to it as the honeymoon period because it is the time where weight loss is most dramatic. It's easier than it's ever been or ever going to be in their life. But then after that, that biological impact that's so strong that first year, after that starts to wax and wane a little bit, it's really back to their efforts and their lifestyle change Slip back to those old habits mm-hmm. that they had so long ago. Yeah, that we've practiced thousands of times over, eating too quickly or eating in response to emotions, those kind of things.
1: How many times do you normally meet with a patient before the surgery? You talked about this three-month period, but yep. I don't I would assume you're involved in all of that. Or are you regularly?
4: So we have a group of us here that are involved in leading, um, you know, we do over 600 evaluations a year, and we lead more than 12 groups here, pre- and post-surgery groups. And so for someone who's in our region, we'll see them initially for the evaluation after they've seen the endocrinologist who makes sure they medically qualify for the surgery. Um, And then we would see them one hour once a week for 12 weeks for this behavior change program, and then sometimes for a brief or five- follow-up individual session at the end of that program to make sure they're ready and then they know about all the other supports along the way. If they're non-local, they might be seeing someone like me closer to them with similar frequency.
3: There's a lot that goes into this surgery, a lot of time and effort. It's not just check in for a surgery and everything gets better magically, huh? Yes.
4: (laughs)
1: And it's part of your job to make sure that these people do well after the surgery and that it's successful.
4: You know, it really is, and I wish, I always tell my physician colleagues that my um, crystal ball is on back order from eBay, (laughs) and so I can't always predict exactly how someone's going to do, but we know some of the risk factors. If we can help alleviate those, people do better. And then after surgery, we work a lot with folks. Um, We know 20 to 30% of people who have gastric bypass surgery five years out have either regained or not lost enough weight that the surgery is not considered medically successful at Mm. that point. 20 to 30 percent. 20 to 30. So 70 to 80 percent are, which is great and better than most medications that we have. But we've gone to the highest level intervention that we have now, and these folks are still not successful. And what we tend to see are two pathways. One is what I call kind of the derail pathway. Life threw me such a major curveball that I just completely got off my healthy lifestyle program. Program. You know, I lost someone significant in my life, I lost my job. And then the other folks, what we tend to see is drift. Mm. And it's about three to five years out where they tend to just drift away from what they were doing. Often they're caregiving for other people. I have parents with dementia, yeah. I have lots of kids, I have a spouse with a medical illness, and my self care goes to the bottom of the list and those old habits, and then that weight just start to creep back on.
3: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Grothy, for helping us to understand all the ramifications and how important this surgery is. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Google and Mayo Clinic team up to enhance the search for reliable health information on the web.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, as anyone with a computer or a smartphone knows, the Internet has really become the go-to place when you're searching for health information. And while the web does have some very good and reliable information, it also has some information that's, well, well not so good. Not
3: so good. Well, how do you tell the difference? The leading search engine, Google, is partnering with Mayo Clinic to help ensure that reliable health information is more accessible when you search the web. And here to talk about how this new Google search function works is Dr. Phil Hagen. He is a specialist in preventive and occupational medicine. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hagen.
5: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: You've got something new going on with uh, Google, and that's Way uh, and a name we all recognize. Tell us about that. Yeah, we've been putting
5: uh, reliable health information out uh, on the web for about 20 years, but we know that um, people often start out searching for health information with a search engine like Google, and the problem is that... Um, Google is so good, if you will, or so broad, um, that if you look up a common condition, you may get a million or two uh, (laughs) hits. Um, And so the real issue for us is we wanted people, uh, one, to be able to get reliable information at the first glance, and two, to have rapid access to good health information about a whole variety of uh, health topics.
3: Isn't it already set up, though, that when you Google something, the top responses kind of come up in a box where it's, it's highlighted that those are advertisers? This is going to be different than that?
5: It is. And so what we know is uh, uh, that people come searching for information for lots of reasons. So it may be that they've got a symptom and they're wondering if they have a disease. It might be that they were just diagnosed with a disease or a family member mm-hmm. was just diagnosed with a disease. Those are both... Pretty important uh, reasons. Alternatively, they may have just heard of a condition uh, on the news like Ebola, mm-hmm. and they're just uh, scrambling to get a little bit of information. Or maybe they're trying to get a clue for a crossword puzzle or do a uh, <laughs> school assignment and just check the box that they looked up something on Health How on the Web. How
3: spell tuberculosis?
5: Exactly. Okay, got it. And, and so what we want people to be able to do is to go to their favorite go-to search engine, and for many people that's Google, uh, to key in a condition – to get a little snapshot, a little snippet of information describing a medical condition and also a little bit of information about um, how common it is, whether it's more common in men and women, um, what age group does it affect the most, maybe whether it's infectious
1: or not. And maybe that's all they need. So now that information is provided by Mayo to Google uh, with regard to any condition that you can look up the most.
5: So what we did was uh, to talk with Google and say, uh, we like this concept. Google said uh, we'd like to be able to provide this structured set of information uh, about each of a number of common conditions. Would you be willing to work with us, uh, number one, to help identify those, number two, to provide some short descriptions of those, short, accurate descriptions, and number three, to review data that they have had uh, professional abstractors pull out from uh, medical websites and medical literature? And so that's what we did. We started off with about 400 conditions, mm. um, and now we're sitting back and seeing how popular those are, uh, what kind of questions do they raise, do they satisfy uh, people's needs for the first look. And then if it seems like it's, it's a good approach, um, we'll also try to find out how many of those people were really looking for serious reasons. They were just diagnosed with the condition. family member Mm -hmm. was just diagnosed with the condition. And how often do they click through for more in-depth information, like they might have on the Mayo Clinic site? And so, for instance, if they were looking up lung, lung cancer, They could get that quick snapshot of it. Um, But if they had a specific uh, diagnosis, a specific kind of lung cancer, they might look up more in-depth information to find out what kind of tests are being done uh, to look for that or what kind of treatment uh, options they have. And then they might also, uh, when they come to a broad site like Mayo Clinic's website, uh, be able to ask for an appointment. If after looking at things they said, yeah, what I really want, I've got this kind of rare form of uh, a cancer or a disease, uh, can I go to a medical center like Mayo's that the right place to go? And, uh, in fact, then the next step that they could do is request an appointment.
1: So, so how does a patient know uh, or a person know that it's Mayo approved or that Mayo would recommend that site?
5: Well, what we do, so what we have done is reviewed the information. So we wrote the definitions of the diseases. Mm-hmm. So we believe that people are getting a nice... Simple but clear definition of those uh, diseases. And then number two, we've looked at that snapshot view of it. Beyond that, they have to choose their own site. We hope they'll choose the Mayo Clinic site. Um, but if they want more in-depth information, they will have to choose which site they're going to go to. Uh, is it the National Cancer Institute or is it Mayo Clinic? Uh, but to, to choose a reputable site. So we've not gone to the next level of saying, These are the top ten sites. I got
3: you. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, if you go, the way they'd understand it is if you go and say, what is tuberculosis, the answer is, here's the answer brought to you by Mayo Clinic. And then you can continue to search through other information. And that's one of the criticisms, actually, that I've heard of this and read about it is that, well, this is just Mayo. And, you know, certainly it's a criticism that Google gets, too. You get to control this search. And so mail gets to be part of that control. And what is the feedback then? What have you been hearing from people?
5: Yeah, you know, I think that, that that's, number one, a valid criticism. Mm-hmm. And number two, we have heard that um, from users of it as well. Um, and, and oftentimes uh, it has uh, sort of a, a suspicious air to it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, are you guys, uh, and it ranges from, um, well, are you guys in cahoots and are you trying to exclude everyone else? And the answer to that is no. Um, are you sending patient information to Google as a result of this effort? No. Um, This was really a very circumscribed project to test this concept uh, of creating a snapshot. And the only... uh, connection or link from it other than our review of the validity of the information um, is that uh, Mayo is an easy click from that it's not the only click um, but it's a relatively easy click from that to get to the information on the Mayo Clinic
1: website but if you wanted to go to another site you certainly could absolutely do you have any idea how many people go to the web every day every week every month looking for health information Well,
5: um, I don't know the exact numbers, but it is the second most common reason that people search for information on the web. And,
1: uh, and By the way, what's number one?
5: I don't know what number oh, one I is. Oh, I thought you were going to say pizza recipes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: recipes it, is why I go it, to the web. It,
5: it may be. I only deal with the, the health side of things. <laughs> um, so it's
1: the second most common second reason. The second most common that reason about.
5: that people search for something on the yeah, web. Right. We know from our own experience that uh, people come to the Mayo Clinic website, so that's uh, clearly for health information, on the order of uh, 20 million times a month. Um, and so it's a lot of people looking up a lot of health information.
1: Do you uh, ha- have any idea how many people have ended up seeking, uh, asking for an appointment at the Mayo Clinic because of what you have done?
5: We don't. And I'm not sure that, that we have the ability to look at in- the, the data that clearly. Um, we certainly want people to come uh, to Mayo Clinic, especially when they've got those very specialized or very unusual diseases, um, because we think we're one of the few places in the country that can provide that. Um, we certainly couldn't see everybody who has a condition, even uh, a Relatively rare condition like lung cancer um, at Mayo Clinic, and so um, we don't want to uh, promise that uh, if you just click on this button, uh, you can come to Mayo for whatever mm-hmm. your medical condition is. Where we got into this relationship um, just as a vehicle for providing reliable information at a quick look.
1: It's obviously a good thing, but does anybody pre-screen all of those uh, potential sites on? a particular condition, like lung cancer. Not to the best of my knowledge. Okay, so you have uh, this should be very helpful because, as we mentioned at the beginning, some of the information out there is not all that great.
5: Certainly true from uh, speaking with my patients.
1: Dr. Hagen,
3: thanks for being with
1: us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Dr. Hagen is a specialist in preventive and occupational medicine at Mayo Clinic and medical director for Healthy Living at Mayo Clinic Global Business Solutions.
3: That's our program for this week.
1: For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcasts and previously aired programs. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet
3: us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We may answer your question during an upcoming program.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.